Before we get into the show, a brief word from our sponsor, Deputy. At your practice, what happens when staff calls out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill their place? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does that cost your practice? Deputy is a simple app that has helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand, communicate schedules with your team, and instantly find replacements when someone calls in sick. To learn more and to try Deputy for free, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. All right. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO. Um, and we're joined today by Mike Sakopoulos, who's our general counsel. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to continue our series of Rip from the Headlines, where we identify legal cases uh, that have become newsworthy and see if there are any lessons learned. Um, what could have been done differently? <clears throat> how do physicians protect against against uh, these types of issues, even when the physician wins in court, even with a defense a verdict? So are you ready to dive in? Mike, I think I've found Let's one here of interest. Let's do it. All right. Let's make it happen. Anyway, this uh, was a hematoma following a facelift. So um, patient discussed the uh, uh, facelift to address frown lines as well as tightening of the skin around the neck. She indicated to the surgeon she was taking some blood pressure medication, not particularly an uncommon issue. Um, so anyway, we start off, the initial date was on May 20th. That was when the dialogue occurred. And following month, June 9th, the patient had surgery. Um, patient said, although the surgeon and others noted episodes of hypertension. She was allowed to leave the facility after procedure. Not uncommon, though. That afternoon, she experienced hematoma as well as its expansion at the surgical site and was rushed to the hospital. And interestingly enough, she was in the hospital for 18 days. Now, I'm reading this from the kind of broad legal summary, and it doesn't go into the medical details, but I can describe what the allegation stated, said the surgeon was negligent for failing to properly evaluate the patient, failing to adequately assess her medical history, failing to appreciate and properly respond to intraoperative hypertension, failing to screen and evaluate her as an inappropriate candidate for outpatient surgery, uh, failed, fail, failing to follow up with postoperative care and management, failing to advise her to seek additional medical surgical care, failing to refer her to a medical facility for appropriate consultations, failing to recommend the procedure take place in a hospital setting, failing to monitor and medicate her after episodes of hypertension occurred. Oh my God, what a laundry list of allegations. This is a, this is a allegation of failure from start to finish. The surgeon denied all of the allegations and he himself said the patient was negligent. This went to court, and this was a defense verdict. The physician won. Now, the experts in this case, now remember, this patient was hospitalized for 18 days. There were defense experts in plastic surgery, no surprise there, neuropsychology, neurology, radiology. I, I have no idea why the patient was hospitalized for 18 days unless as a 
as a, um, I guess, sequela, a sequela to the initial hematoma complication. There may have been other complications, and it's hard to say. Maybe, maybe uh, there was an infection. Maybe the patient needed to have uh, graft. I have no idea. But 18 days seems like a ridiculously long period for a for a hematoma. Any initial thoughts, Mike, before we get into the the details no, of this? Clearly, a lot uh, a lot going on uh, here in 18 days is a is a long time to be be hospitalized, right? So something's something's gone awry, but that doesn't mean that we're going to find medical malpractice. I mean, the the big clue is that the patient had a history of hypertension and she was taking blood pressure medication, but many patients have hypertension. I think the initial question is whether the hypertension is well controlled with medication or is refractory. I mean, many patients intraoperatively have spikes in blood pressure just because of, you know, the patient's waking up and there's a tube in their throat or they experience some pain. So pressure goes up and down. I think the question ultimately comes down to whether the blood pressure was appropriate at closing, was the patient dry, was the wound dry at closing, was a drain needed, and how high are the spikes after closing? Certainly, we've seen patients in the PACU, uh, post, post-surgery you know, care unit, where the patient is waking up, going from their nice sleepy state into, uh, into normalcy, where depending upon how well their pain is controlled, how well they're breathing, et cetera, there's this dance between too much and too little pain control with pressure going too high and too low. And that's why anesthesia broadly and post-anesthesia care, um, more specifically, can be very challenging. You're trying to thread the needle and get these numbers right. But I think the mere fact that someone had a history of hypertension in and of itself is not a showstopper. Many patients um, have hypertension or are on antihypertensive medications and have surgery every day without event. So I, it's hard to know precisely why this turned into a legal issue. I can certainly see how a hematoma turned into a legal issue, um, but it's hard for me to understand how plaintiffs' experts showed up to say that it was a violation of standard of care to operate on a patient who has hypertension and that such a procedure should have should not have been done in an outpatient surgery center should have been done in a hospital facility what are some of your initial thoughts on that well, one of my thoughts is uh was this this patient cleared by anyone else uh, for surgery and oftentimes we see that as as a way to um to avoid some some degree of, of, of liability by saying that we've had the patients been been cleared uh, by by others, um, I'm also thinking that there's more here that we we don't know, and the fact that the defense used a a, a neuropsychologist um, may speak volumes as to what was going on here. Yeah, I think I do like your point in terms of getting surgical clearance. Um, While most surgeons are familiar with the concept of hypertension, they don't treat hypertension as part of their daily practice. 
certainly they know what antihypertensive medications are and they know what levels of blood pressure are dangerous, either high uh, or low. But they're not the individuals that clear patients for surgery. That is to say, based on the patient's blood pressure, that they are a decent candidate for anesthesia. Um, so I do think it makes sense for people in an older demographic, patients in an older demographic, to be cleared for anesthesia, particularly if they don't have a pristine record, meaning if they have a history of hypertension or taking, even if it's well-controlled on blood pressure medications, it's not a bad idea to get the blessing of the patient's primary care doctor, even a specialist, if they're seeing a cardiologist, for example, to get them to weigh in on the risk of having the procedure done at all. And number two, are there any any warnings or any caveats in terms of how the surgery should be performed? Can it be done safely in a surgery center? Can it be done uh, or must it be done in a hospital uh, facility? And it's not just blood pressure. It's people who have a history, uh, even a family history of a cardiac problem. So it's possible a patient may have gone through their entire life. They're now 60 years old, uh, never smoked. They exercised um, as best you can tell their blood pressure is fine, <clears throat> yet there, there is in the background family history that mom and dad perished at the age of 50 due to uh, myocardial infarct. I mean, family history certainly weighs in on the potential risk. Now, here you've got this patient that is not taking any medications, as best you can tell. They do not um, have a personal history, which would suggest uh, blockage of the coronary arteries, but the family history may tell a different tale since genetics is so important. And if this is a person who has a primary care doctor, I would certainly have them say, do you think this person needs to be worked up any further with uh, two family members, uh, direct family members, um, having had the genes potentially or, or likely uh, to cause early death. It be, in my estimation, if that goes unheeded and you go straight to surgery with the stress of surgery, the patient has an MI or even dies from the surgery, I think it would be very difficult to defend unless you individually take care of these difficult patients and feel like you can say, based on this information, I'm well aware of the family history of the parents uh, dying early in life. And I'm, I'm, I think the risk is low. Well, think? and by, by risk, we need to acknowledge this was an elective procedure, right? I mean, so what the procedure is seems to me to come into the legal calculation as to the degree of risk that we're willing to, to take to undergo a procedure. Is it elective or is it uh, critically necessary? Meaning that time is not of the essence. You have all the time in the world to gather all the background facts to make an informed decision. And... Look, if you are taking care of a patient in the hospital, frequently you'll have either anesthesiologist or CRNA who are evaluating the patient separately for the risk of anesthesia. But if it's just you in a surgery center and the procedure is being done without you know, full anesthesia and it's, um, it's done with conscious sedation, for example, it may just be you, um, in which case you'll be the person responsible for assessing 
the risk. The benefit to doing this uh, with uh, anesthesia support is that they will be assessing the patient independently, uh, but not all patients require um, anesthesiologists or CRNA to get the job done. I mean, conscious sedation can often be done with, I mean, every state church is differently in terms of the regulatory requirements, but by and large, if you don't need as much to uh, make the patient comfortable during a procedure, you don't necessarily need all the personnel associated with that. But the flip side is, is that now it's up to you to assess the risk of the patient to see whether uh, the background history and your current physical exam supports that the setting is appropriate and the type of procedure you're being done, particularly if it's elective, um, is, is appropriate. Oh, I, I agree with that. Why don't we talk about specific laws in, in, in certain states that might or might not apply to this kind of uh, situation? And one that comes to mind is, is California, a state that, that you're, you're licensed in to practice law. Maybe you could tell us about uh, Donda's, uh, Donda West's uh, law. So Donda West uh, is was the mother of Kanye West. So most people will be aware of who uh, Kanye uh, West uh, uh, is. He's a uh, famous um, singer, musician, etc. And apparently Donda West, his mother, had a elective surgical, uh, plastic surgical uh, procedure done and um, she died. So my understanding is she had liposuction, tummy tug, breast reduction. She developed complications and died at home several days later of these complications. So what happened? She apparently had a pre-existing heart condition that wasn't, um, my understanding was it wasn't picked up before, but I don't know that because I don't know the details of the case, but I do know it triggered what is called the Donda West law. And I'm just reading what this says. And this was implemented um, probably 2007, 2008. So it's been around for a while. And let me read. It says it would prohibit the performance of an elective cosmetic surgery procedure on a patient unless within 30 days prior to the procedure, the patient has received an appropriate physical examination by and has received clearance for the procedure from a licensed physician and surgeon, certified nurse practitioner, or a licensed physician assistant as specified or as applied to an elective facial cosmetic surgery procedure, licensed dentist, or licensed physician and surgeon. Um, the bill would require the physical examination to include the taking of an appropriate medical history to be confirmed on the day of the procedure. Um, bill would provide that a violation of these provisions would not constitute a crime, but it probably would create a regulatory headache and serve as a seed for a lawsuit. So what does this mean? And the answer is, I don't know that anybody really knows. I think it basically argues for certainly doing an appropriate history and physical examination on an elective surgical patient before the procedure. But I mean, that probably was the implied rule before this became um, explicit. And here it, it really just applies to elective cosmetic surgical uh, procedures. They're basically saying you can't rely upon a history and physical in the chart from one year ago, for example, to be relevant and up to date for a procedure. It's got to be timely and the doctor needs to affirm the 
examination, if you will, on the date of the procedure, um, or at least the history on the day. Now, here it is. The bill would require the physical examination to include the taking of an appropriate medical history to be confirmed on the day of the procedure. So in a sense, the patient has a history of hypertension. You would need to include that today the patient is having surgery and we confirm that the patient indeed has hypertension. This is what the patient's taking for it and so on and so forth. And I don't know how much that changes anything. I don't know that anybody has been beaten up for failing to comply with the Dondo West law. It may have been one of these feel-good statutes that was put together to plug a perceived hole in the regulatory framework. Hard to say. Um, you, you would hope that people are doing histories and physicals before surgery without the law, right? One would hope. I mean, I do know there are there are practices that will screen patients <clears throat> virtually. They will screen patients on the phone and, you know, the patient says, I want to have this elective cosmetic procedure. Maybe they've sent some pictures and, you know, they're they're flying in and they're going to show up the day of surgery. Um, it may be that there's not a appropriate H&P on the chart. I think the purpose of this law is to say that if you run your practice that way on the day of surgery, you you will need to make sure that there's an appropriate H&P in the chart and that if there are any problems, you need to get them addressed or cancel the procedure. I think that was the intent of Dondo West law. Well, I think that it also argues for doing the, the H&P yourself, right? Because you may have access to a chart and look and see that the patient's been in for a routine physical, but you, you really don't, if you're putting yourself at risk by doing the procedure, um, I think you would want to know that the, the history and physical was done uh, properly and comprehensively. I wouldn't bank on someone that I didn't know uh, work to um, to go forward. I would redo it myself before operating on the patient. Yeah, and not to uh, diss any of our surgical colleagues, but I do think that <clears throat> primary care doctors are probably going to be better, on average, better history takers and uh, do a better phys uh, physical exam in terms of identifying the risk factors for general anesthesia or even some types of conscious sedation in patients more so than the than typical surgeon. That, that doesn't mean that... Uh, your typical surgeon does not have the background training experience to do so. I think they do. I just think that it's easier um, to shuttle this to the patient's primary care doctor to get the job done. And you're getting a second set of eyes on the uh, on the patient and putting that in the chart. So it, it'll be more believable, more credible if indeed it's questioned uh, at some point in litigation. Before we end, a quick word from our sponsor, Deputy. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. 
That's one eight seven seven med just or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.